happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 170 for the 25th of March, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state's virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus, although I am not located at the fabulous University of Montana campus as of the last two weeks um, in Missoula, Montana. And joining me as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you doing this evening? Good evening, Jason. I am well. Joining you, as it were, from uh, the family war room, or it's actually our son's old office in the back, <clears throat> where I have a nice uh, kitchen towel draped over a fluorescent lamp that is providing some light. And I uh, am, have set this up as the webcasting and tech support and teaching studio, perhaps for the rest of the school year. So glad to be here from Oklahoma City, uh, where I'm at the Cassidy School as the technology integration and innovation specialist. And I am pleased to welcome back to the EdTech situ Situation Room, Eric Langhorst, Dr. Langhorst. Oh, thanks. We have a panel of doctors here. So, <laughs> Eric, uh, tell us what's happening in Liberty and uh, what's going on with you lately. Well, uh, my name is Eric Langhorst. I teach 8th uh, grade U.S. history and 7th and 8th grade computer science, along with a online high school class that I teach on uh, social media and modern society uh, here in Liberty, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. And uh, we are remote learning. Uh, we had spring break last week, so we're officially on day three of remote learning. And um, officially, it will be that way until at least the 27th of April. Um, and then we'll kind of see if anything changes between now and then. Wow. And you guys are also not like locked down in the state, right? So they haven't, you know, socially quarantined everybody or son done any no. force. Our governor has mostly kind of stayed hands off on that. Um, we are um, on a stay home order. Um, the Kansas City mayor uh, issued that uh, starting yesterday. And then the city of Liberty um, followed suit. Pretty much about every county around Kansas City has issued the same thing. So we're at a stay at home order uh, for the next 30 days. Um, but there's been nothing official across the entire state. So. Yeah. And our state school board just voted today to have the entire state of Oklahoma schools be virtual and not return at all this year. Um, I talked to a friend in McAllister, Oklahoma, yesterday who they have 800 kids at their high school, and I think 200 of them do not have Wi-Fi at home. Wow. So my thought is, you know, we basically are facing immediate main learning technology initiative, MLTI, with no, really no advanced prep where we're going to have to get what probably will amount to a Chromebook in every child's hands immediately. And we're going to have to have private public partnerships to get Wi-Fi, community Wi-Fi in areas or, you know, Wi-Fi to folks' houses, uh, you know, high speed Internet. And we have such a huge gap in access you know, and then between schools, I think in McAllister, they actually have rolled out one to one for their ninth graders, but not for their other, you know, grades. There's just huge gaps. So I think we had an article either last week or the week before talking about that. So, well, Dr. Neifer, what are we going to do here on this show? We've got six live viewers. What the heck? <laughs> this stay at home thing may encourage more people to tune into the show. 
Our time has come for live viewership. Well, the EdTech Situation Room is a podcast where we take a look at current goings-ons in the technology world and kind of shoot them through an educational lens to see if we can't make some sense of what's going on in the the broader uh, macro and micro technology world. And obviously, you know, the, 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 the huge story right now is the spread our country's response. Uh, we did talk a lot the last two weeks, really, about um, some strategies for that. But there are a lot of interesting news pieces that are, are going around this. Uh, if you want to see the links uh, for uh, anything we talk about or the stuff we don't get to, which is usually quite a bit since we tend to kind of dive deeply in some of these stories, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links. And it will bring you to our massive Google document that, that, that has all the links we've done on this podcast since the very beginning a couple of years back. Um, but, uh, Eric, since you are a guest tonight, why don't you go ahead and pick an article uh, where we can start our discussion this evening? All right. Let me open up here. Um, now, I did not put any articles on. I just have a geek of the week. So That's okay. That's okay. Well, hey, let me let me start us off with one and then. This is we always just you know kind of toss toss it around. So this is an Ars Technica article from uh, from I guess today March twenty fifth. Uh, this was uh, how to get Verizon and AT and T data cap fees waived during the pandemic. So uh, one of the conversations I've been having with some folks um, you know involved with cell phones. I shared that as Shelley taught at Positive Tomorrows, which is a wonderful Oklahoma City school uh, private school for for homeless students. You know it was amazing because. All of her kids are homeless, but in virtually every single case, a parent still had a cell phone. And so that was a way to get connected. But of course, data caps is important. We ought to have conversations about the size of files. You know, back in the day when Eric and I were starting our podcasting and, you know, the mid 2000s, right? I mean, you didn't have internet connectivity speeds on mobile devices. We didn't have mobile devices. There was no iPhone. Um, but you know, these things, are, are a concern when you've got limited bandwidth. And so anyway, this article basically says if you can tell your provider Verizon or AT&T that your finances have been hurt by the pandemic, then apparently they're going to waive your data cap. And, uh, that, that sounds, that sounds good. We are on an unlimited plan with T-Mobile, but that actually means that past a certain point will start to be throttled. And I don't know that we really experience it that much. So I'll toss that to you, Eric. What, What's your family, you know, cell plan? And have you guys ended up switching between providers? And what, what is anyway, that connectivity look like in the Liberty and Kansas City area? Are you guys pretty robust with choices or what does it look um, like? Yeah. So I've been a Verizon customer for probably, gosh, like 17, 18 years, probably since I moved down here. Um, and I've been happy with them. Um, we have a family plan. We're not unlimited. Um, I think we share something like maybe eight gigs. Um, a month and we like never go over that. So um, I have a but little. But you haven't been doing home learning either. So what are the right, what right. are the grades right. of your children at this point in terms of schools? So we have a sophomore and a sixth grader. But um, when they're at home, I mean, they're running off our um, our internet that we get. We actually have home internet through Spectrum. So when they're at home, they're not using any of that data. Sure. Yeah. Um, so and and I put a cap on our sixth grader. Actually, she has a a cap, a monthly cap of, I think she's, I don't know if it's one or two, but um, she's pretty good about staying under it. So um, we haven't run into the issues there. And our, our home Wi-Fi has kept up pretty good. We haven't had any interruptions. Um, I know I talked to one of our district IT guys and they said that um, the district flow was getting a little bit slow with classroom and stuff, Google Classroom. Um, but so far, 
we haven't had any issues. So um, knock yeah. on wood, um, everything goes the same. That's good. Well, it'll be interesting to see if T-Mobile offers the same kind of thing. You're on T-Mobile, Jason, and that's a recent, uh, you know, thing for Montana. Is it, how does it compare in terms of speed and access? You have to be still in a major city to get good T-Mobile. Uh, you, you do not. And in fact, there's some interesting things that have happened. I just dropped, uh, I guess we could call this some shugung breaking news. Uh, T-Mobile has increased the amount of hotspot, uh, uh, data on plans during the COVID situation. And in fact, I think it's 20 more gigs a month. And on their current unlimited plan, although some of the older ones are a little better, I think you were maxed out at 20 gigs of hotspot data and then it deprioritized you down to 3G. That's up to 40 gigs now, I think, on, on the typical plan that, that, that does cap that way. Um, and then I was looking for the article and I couldn't find it, but I know that the T-Mobile in particular had also added some additional capability in the form of expanded bands in the low band range. That's where T-Mobile's um, newest technology is, is in lower bands. So bands have only been around for a couple of years after they got rid of uh, the older style broadcast television with the analog signals. And I can say that uh, because I'm the kind of guy that does test his, his speed every couple of days, uh, because it's, I guess, who I am. Uh, uh, at the house, I was getting 25 down for T-Mobile, and I picked up a 75 down from my house, same place where I would test. And so I do think that, that at least T-Mobile, and I'd be really surprised if uh, Sprint, Verizon, and AT&T weren't also doing this. Um, it seems like that there's been some effort to expand bandwidth here. And um, I can tell you that there's been other signs of, you know, people, more people utilizing these technologies. I know that Moodle.org announced that they had a one-day jump of registered Moodle sites by 30% in one day. Not like since COVID started, like one day they had a 30% increase in the number of registered sites for Moodle. And I'm guessing that probably Moodle isn't the traditional uh, go-to anymore with Google Classroom and Microsoft Teams, uh, uh, kind of B-grade uh, LMSs like Schoology and Edmodo uh, that are free, right, and can be easily implemented, uh, especially with new users that the fact that Moodle is getting a 30% increase in one day, I think is, is pretty interesting. And think that there is, um, you know, uh, the bright side of the, 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 the broader health crisis is that it's going to expose some cracks, I think, that we may never have had the opportunity to take a look at. I think the fact that a lot of people are working out of their house, the fact that uh, people are not in, in corporate environments, they're working out of the house, they're along with their kids who are accessing what I would assume are relatively high bandwidth activities to support learning, whether it's remote teaching or you're kind of creating some things to to kind of enrich your kid. Um, I think we'll find out how good the Internet access is uh, in, in a variety of areas. Related to that, and, and I can't find the article, but there have been a number of efforts in the last seven days to also highlight that there are huge equity issues as it relates to access to broadband. And Wes, you mentioned it in regards to individual students that, that, that may lack access. I can tell you in Montana, we're noticing this as we work with our schools uh, of students that want to continue with with distance learning courses in, in my program, um, but are in an area that 
the their most stable access to broadband internet was the school itself. And you go home and either it's slow and expensive, I'm talking about satellite internet, or uh, there is only one provider, it's your wireless provider because there is no wired internet to areas just outside of town in very rural Montana. And um, and if you're behind a hill, your house is behind a hill, then you don't have access to the wireless. And uh, one of the discussions, and I've been keeping a very long list of stuff that I can't wait to talk about with folks after this crisis is over with, one of them is we still not have enough access to broadband for, uh, it's really for humans in the United States, but I would particularly call out students who, you know, end up in broadband deserts once they leave the school building. And clearly issues related to socioeconomic status, right? That's part of it. Although in, in, in larger urban areas, oftentimes you can get highly discounted, let's say it's cable internet or DSL or maybe even a fiber line, but there are still wide disparities in the United States. And 25 years after the digital divide was initially discussed, I still think we have a huge problem here, and I'm hoping that we use the energy of, of, of this situation to really make uh, uh, end roads on that particular problem. Well, I'm going to argue that we can't wait till the end of this because we don't know when the end of it is. And with states like Oklahoma today saying, hey, we're going virtual for the rest of the year, we're just going to have to dig in uh, and, and get it done. Um, I have believed for a, a number of years, right, since the early 2000s, really, that, and this goes back to Eric Bungers and I taught, have a have a connection with David Warlick in, uh, me, you know, media, what is it, new, new literacy for the new era or whatever. It, it, the idea that literacy has changed and the tools have to change. And so the, the one laptop per child project that, you know, Folks at MIT had spearheaded, and then we had um, the, the, the main learning technology initiative. These things have happened, but I think a lot of people at a lot of even schools have not saw, have not seen those things as, wow, that's where we all need to go. I don't know that any of us would have predicted we'd be in this kind of a place, but like, it's not an option. If we're not going to, to physically open the doors of school, in, in public schools in Oklahoma, we are going to have to get learning devices in people's hands and figure out how to get them connected. So, uh, you know, I, I heard that, I guess, the Senate, um, you know, passed a big you know stimulus package or whatever. I think we're going to need some substantial funding for this kind of thing. And I think, you know, communities are going to need to be creative, uh, look at options for community Wi-Fi. Um, you know, it's this is <laughs> this is a dynamic situation, which is changing definitely on a daily basis. Uh, I just, I never imagined we would be in, in this kind of place. Eric, you pretty much predicted this, didn't you, about a year ago? You you, you wrote on your blog, this is going to happen, and you were able to forecast with exact precision this um, will happen. I mean, that was not, part of But I started podcast. talking about it at school about six weeks ago. Oh, really? And, okay. and I started telling people, uh, you know, I, we're probably going to be out and that kind of stuff, so... I mean, okay. No, I did um, not. I did not know a year ago, but like about about six weeks ago, there are two of us that started kind of saying, "Hey, you know, do you have enough food for a couple weeks if you need it? Do you have enough?" And they people thought we were crazy, um, but yeah. How? Who were you listening to, and how did you discern through all of the noise of uh, what we have now with both social and, me and mainstream media uh, the voices that helped you realize, "Hey, this is this is going to happen." Um. 
I mean, most of my sources are NPR, CNN, just, you know, I mean, national main media and main stuff. But I just, I mean, I guess I just started watching stuff happening in China and, you know, it's like, gosh, there's no way. I mean, just we're so mobile. I mean, I, I don't know. So we started talking about it probably about six weeks ago, kind of in some small groups and. Um, people are like, "Oh, come on! This is like the flu or whatever." We're like, "No, I, I think this could be, this could be bad." So, but, yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. Where else, Doctor Knife, for tonight? Um, let's see. Um, should we continue down the COVID rabbit hole here? Uh, actually, sure. do you want to talk about your the the two links you shared in regards to um, kind of quick starts guides for teaching remotely or or doing virtual yep. courses? You bet. These are two posts. So we've had Carl Hooker on the show as a guest before, and he wrote a fantastic post on March 19th called A Beginner's Toolkit for Teaching Remotely. You know, in addition to talking about devices, because really that's just one piece of the puzzle, right? Getting a laptop or or another kind of mobile learning device in students and teachers' hands and getting us connected online is the entry point. But then there's all these other things. And so uh, Carl, you know, talks about some really you know, excellent uh, just pedagogy and routines to get into, you know, consistent communication, ways to support your students. I mean, what I haven't heard a lot of people talking about is that this is, I think, going to get fairly dark pretty soon. Um, I have unfortunately been in an emergency room uh, twice in the last few days. Sunday, <clears throat> I realized that I had another kidney stone. I had had one about four years ago. And so uh, they allowed my wife to come in with me as I quickly offered my arm for an intravenous, you know, uh, uh, reception of, of some morphine, which was lovely. That's prescription narcotics is exactly what you want when you are <clears throat> suffering from a kidney stone. But I actually got behind on my medicine, ended up going back when Monday and the same ER would not let her in. They had, you know, really kind of locked things down even more ready for triage. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an eerie thing to, to be there. So, my urologist that I talked to on Monday had said that, you know, years ago before businesses kind of took over the hospitals, we had maybe three months of supplies. He said, we have more like seven to nine days of supplies in hospitals now. And so to Carl's point here about supporting your students, like things are going to get, you know, even more stressful. And so if we have the opportunity to teach online and if our students have that opportunity to connect to us, whether we're doing that or not, like finding ways to connect to them. One of the things we've pointed out with Google Hangout Meets, because we've been a Google school for 10 years, when you create a Hangout Meet, it actually creates a phone number that you can dial in as well. And so, you know, let's not think that, oh, gosh, my kids don't have Wi-Fi. I can't connect to them. Yes, we can. They're, you know, the, the cell phone is incredibly ubiquitous today. And even if you have younger students that don't have a cell phone, someone in the home is going to have one. So anyway, this is, this is a really, really good article. It talks about uh, virtual office hours, uh, content delivery, retrieval that you basically want to have a platform for being able to not only send information, but then receive information back. For us, that's mainly Google Classroom or Seesaw. Um, and he talks a little bit about the power of reflection and he's got, you know, these different five um, items in a, in a nice, you know, little uh, visual, I guess, infographic. And then the other one um, is interesting. It's, it's weird how these kind of rabbit holes happen that you look up somebody. But I happened to look up um, some stuff about Texas Tech. I remember this this uh, professor, Jose Bowen, who's now 
um, actually out in Baltimore. He wrote a, a book and was kind of famous for this teach naked Chronicle of Higher Ed article years ago where he said, you know, he, he was taking out all the projectors in his classrooms at SMU. He was the dean of, of the art college because he didn't want his professors, you know, PowerPointing kids to death. Well, anyway, he very smart guy. His name is Dr. Jose Bowen. He's the dean of uh, a university now out in Baltimore. And his post is called Your New Virtual Course, A Quick Primer. And so both of our kids that are in college today have suddenly flipped the switch. Everything's online. And so lots of professors and also adjunct teachers or instructors are in this kind of boat. And so what is Dr. Bowen's first point? Relationships first. Okay. This is a university professor talking about this. And he talks about content, engagement, motivation, reading and writing, clarifying expectations, learning together. He talks about testing and cheating, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous. Uh, the technology, and then, you know, basically encouraging us to try. We, we're going to have to try stuff uh, and go new ways. So I think those are our excellent resources and articles. And if if you don't have a place already where you are curating this, Jason used a metaphor years ago in Montana at a lovely conference we went to called the, what's it, the Blackfoot Conference, uh, Blackfoot Technology. Uh, it was like a bear trap, I think, that, you know, used that Montana uh, mountain man analogy. you got to trap your stuff, right? But where where are you trapping your th- your information? And so these kinds of articles that aren't just, I mean, there's laundry lists of links, but like these are both specific, practical. These are expert folks that have filtered through a lot of different, both experiences and research. And so I think those are, are pretty good. So anything stand out to you, Jason, in that list of, uh, of ideas or things that um, you definitely... Sure. Well, I mean, I think this is all good advice, and you know, in that this is uh, kind of kind of my my day job. That uh, the notion of of staying connected to your learners, providing opportunities for engagement, those are all critical pieces of this. I, you know, I've I, I've been very careful in that um, I've seen a lot of people go online and get pretty snooty about you know good online learning and good distance learning in a sense of that that that's not like if this ends up turning into a long-term deal and by long-term deal, I mean multiple school year deal, then I think we can start talking about setting up great pedagogy, but to teachers that are new to this and are being forced into this posture, whatever you're doing is probably good enough in light of the situation. But something I think is really important to understand is that good distance learning teaching isn't effortless. And um, I uh, it, it takes time and it takes uh, developing kind of a, a, a mindset for it in order to be successful in the same way that I think the ways I like to use to engage students in the classroom when I was a history teacher didn't really work as well online. And in fact, the first question my boss asked me during uh, the interview was that, could you teach the class? you teach and the, the class I was known for back in the day was AP European history. Could you teach that online? And my answer was no, not no period, but no, not in the way I teach it. I could teach this class, but it has to look very different, right? In the sense of, you know, the, the, the thing that I like to mention is, 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 is lectures, right? Like I was a lecturer back in the day and I don't think lecture is a dirty word. I think you have to make sure they're interactive and they're engaging and they have a point. They're not endless. You're good at it. Yada, yada, yada. I also think, too, that if you think you're going to put up an hour-long YouTube video and expect students to watch it and do something with that information, you are sorely mistaken. And uh, the way I like to think of it is you go to one of these huge lecture halls, University of Montana, we have a couple lecture halls that are 500-person lecture halls, and you put the best 
lecturer on campus. And there's quite a competition for that. We have a lot of very famous lecturers at the University of Montana. And you stick 500 people in the room and give each one of them a stop button. In other words, what YouTube gives every one of its users. I'm going to go ahead and guess it wouldn't take very long for someone to slam on the stop button because that changes the dynamic between teacher and student. And so um, look to these articles. There's great examples here of, of thinking about an online class, about creating an engaging environment, but also understand you're doing great, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and like I shared with you last week, Wes, that a former student of mine who's an elementary music teacher now has been putting up daily five or six minute YouTube videos for elementary music students. Um, that that's, I wouldn't call that e-learning, but in the context of what she's doing and the situation that she's in, it is absolutely and utterly perfect. And in the districts, I've seen a, a couple dozen examples of these where teachers are going through the neighborhoods of their kids and leaving chalk written notes um, on the sidewalk in front of their kids' house saying how much they miss them. And that is also kind of a form of distance learning, as it turns out. Um, and uh, we don't use a lot of chalk at the Digital Academy, but you get the point that there's a lot of there's a lot of plugging in here, and I'm glad that um, uh, that Carl and I, I hadn't heard of, of the Teach Naked blog before, and I'm going to bookmark this and read some of the other stuff on there. A quick look here says that this is really interesting the way he's approaching this, and uh, it actually cites a couple articles here that I've actually read before that have uh, have great stuff on it. But yeah, I'm excited to see people coming together and sharing so much great knowledge about how to, how to set this up in a way that's as engaging as possible. Well, Eric, what's your teaching situation and, and how are you looking at how you will modify things? Because I'm guessing you're looking at a, a definite modification in a lot of ways, too. Yeah. So I was, you know, in a situation where I had my kids for three, almost three quarters of the year physically. Um, we did some stuff uh, recently in Missouri that kind of, I think, helped us prepare in some ways as a district for this. Um, they we don't have a lot of snow days, but we do have ice days um, here in Missouri. And so the last couple of years, uh, districts have gotten to the point where they've had so many snow days that they started to talk about um, how they're going to, how they wanted to do um, basically seat minutes and things like that. And so they really opened it up last year to allow virtual learning to happen for snow days. So um, we had that all in place and we got to the point where we got to where we did have a virtual snow day. Um, probably about maybe six weeks ago. And um, I think that we learned a lot on that day. Um, things didn't go 100% awesome, but they also weren't really bad. Um, most teachers in the middle level and lower level are using Google Classroom. Um, at the high school, most of our teachers at the high school level are using Canvas. Um, so we have those like systems in place. Then we had a virtual snow day. And the day before break for us, which was we had like a half day on the Thursday before we took spring break. Um, I just, I, I talked to all my kids and I said, listen, if we do not come back in seven days, um, this is what, you know, you should expect. This is what it's going to look like. And um, I do spend about five minutes and just do a little YouTube video telling kids, you know, recap from yesterday, touching base with them, tell them goofy stuff. I told them about what I did today, worked in the yard a little bit in the afternoon, whatever. Um, and I think that from my experience teaching online college classes with graduate students, that's probably been the most beneficial thing is just doing little three, four minute videos. And um, I'm a longtime listener as well. So I listened to you guys actually, um, your, you know, last week when you guys were talking about not letting perfect be the enemy of good. And I'm just, I'm really afraid that 
there's a lot of teachers thinking, well, gosh, I don't want to do like a three minute video because it's not going to be a viral TikTok or something like that. That's not the point. I mean, spend three minutes talking to your kids that they don't care what you're I mean, I was outside working today. My hair doesn't look that great. And I mean, it doesn't matter how many ums you say it doesn't. They just want to see you. And so I hope that as this goes on, because I mean, we're in it for at least five weeks. Um, I hope that teachers take the chance to use these tools, simple tools, um, just record a video and put it up, um, you know, touching base with your kids. So, so it's been interesting. I teach a computer science class, which has been a little bit more challenging because um, we weren't able to do some of the stuff um, virtually that we had been planning on doing. Uh, my history class, I mean, there's a ton of content, um, doing a little bit of screencast notes, short, you know, 12 minute little things each day. Um, I've done that a couple times, but like tomorrow, my kids are taking a virtual tour of the Harriet Tubman Museum in Maryland that C-SPAN did a couple years ago. It's a cool little 20 minute tour, took it with the curator. I'm having them do sketch notes about it and share the sketch notes with me. So, I mean, just stuff like that, but it's not like every day you're gonna watch like a half an hour of notes or something. Next week, one of the days, I'm gonna have them read for 30 minutes and take a picture of the book they're reading and put it on Google Classroom. I mean, you know, we're gonna have to get creative because <laughs> the stuff that might work one or two days is not gonna work on day 25. And we're gonna have to, you know, figure out how to give kids a little more choice and, yeah. you know, be creative with how we do stuff, so. Well, something I'm excited about is we we were just able to get approval to set up a private Facebook group uh, for instructional support for our teachers and uh, had a lot of discussion uh, about that. And, you know, it is it's great. It is started, you know, it started two days ago. But, there, you know, yes, Facebook is not going to be for everybody. This isn't our only way we're getting instructional support. But there are a heck of a lot of our teachers already on Facebook. It is set up to build virtual communities. And that is what Zuckerberg and his team, among lots of other things, of course, monetizing our data and yada, yada. We'll, we'll, we can talk about surveillance capitalism. We have on the show before if you'd like to go back in some past episodes. But, you know, for this context, needing a platform to let teachers collaborate, to share, also to kind of just have, you know, the water cooler or, or the faculty lounge. I mean, um, it's it's really important that we not only connect with our students, but that we connect with each other. You know, we've got, you know, single teachers, folks living by themselves. I mean, we've got We've got, you know, my, our, our college daughter's home. So we have four adults and two dogs in our house. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of action going on. That presents challenges too. But I'm glad that we have these collaborative tools because we've never had better ones. But how are we going to deploy them and how are we going to use them? And I love your point about getting creative because it is not, it is not the case where you're just going to be able to you know, be a one trick pony with, with your remote learning and say, Hey, this is going to, this is going to work all the time. So I love the virtual field trip idea. I was thinking, you know, remembering about some of the stuff. What was the book that you did? The, the author thing with the, the, um, the book about the civil war and yeah, the, um, gorilla season, gorilla season. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I chatted with Pat actually two days ago. And one of the things I'm going to do is a, um, I'm going to do chapter reads on YouTube and then she's going to be able to pop in for some questions and stuff. So um, that's in the work. The author, by the way, this is the author of the book, which Eric has, you know, connected with her before. Well, we've, we've used it in class for like 16 years and she's done interactive blogs, Skype visits. Um, I mean, we've hung out at Phillies games together, whatever. 
Um, so she's a good friend of mine, but I mean, right away I was like, Hey, can I, do I have permission first of all to read it? And she's like, yes. And then I'll jump in and we can do some, you know, different things as far as answering questions. And then parents can easily participate in that as well. I've had parents read it with the kids quite a bit. Um, and this year we're not going to be able to do that because I I hadn't checked it out to him before we left for break. So I'm going to let Jason jump in because he's ready, but I got to give voice to Peggy. She started a uh, Peggy George daily nuzzle newsletter. So 10 links every day to help teachers and parents find resources, coping with distance learning, coronavirus, and activities. And you can find all that, which we will include on nuzzle.com slash pgeorge. Fantastic, Peggy. Yes, Dr. Neifer, please. All right. I'm like all excited. Like, pick on me, pick on me, teach. Um, I want to pick up something that Eric said that, that that's so important that – uh, that is, is actually been a, a long time lore of people that spend a lot of time doing professional screencasts, which is, uh, don't get fooled by the notion that everything you make needs to be perfect. I, I think you nailed the, the concept and I want to refer to the, the person who I consider to be kind of the Greek god of screencasting, which is, uh, uh Paul Anderson. He's a former Montana teacher of the year, uh, national teacher of the year finalist. He's now a consultant that does a lot of work with, um, with, uh, inquiry science. He had a, a wonderful, uh, very positive experiment with gamifying a classroom and doing a flipped classroom model in Bozeman, which is one of the best school districts in Montana. But he did a really great screencast. I put our links in, in, in the show notes uh, about how to make an educational screencast and, the, the concept's dated. Um, you know, there's better stuff now. The, the software suites he mentioned there, the equipment he mentioned there is actually pretty good, but uh, he does it differently now. And in fact, it's, uh, um, uh, his stuff now is, is light years ahead of, of what he was doing when he first started. Sorry, I've got a 100 year old cat in my bed. There we go. Um, and, uh, and I like how she makes that sound of desperation, but, um, the, uh, the video is called How to Make an Educational Screencast, and he kind of walks through that process, and he talks about something that I actually had to learn about myself because of when I was making uh, PD screencasts for my teachers at, at, as part of my day job is that he was doing things like putting music in the background, and they were super scripted, and they were super formal, and his kids said, you know, this is kind of weird. Like it felt too formal, right? Like we know you, we have a relationship with you. We know what your voice sounds like. Just make it, make it, you know, like you would touch us, talk to us. And his uh, screencast went from being, you know, pretty stilted to something that was a lot more friendly and approachable for kids. And now, um, uh, uh, Mr. Anderson is a very famous AP bio and other science YouTube star. He's been a YouTube scholar uh, 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 and worked on a, a wide variety of wonderful videos. And now he's working largely in inquiry science stuff. But like his point was, you know, don't overproduce these because you're not making uh, 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 heavily produced educational videos because those are really hard to attach to. Uh, Eric, when you mentioned that, you know, you've been outside, you, you know, you weren't looking at your classroom fresh but you were also at home during a quarantine for an international health situation. That's seeing you being human is a really big part of this. And it goes back to what both of those articles mentioned about virtual teaching is that the humanity and the connection is just so incredibly important. So I put links to both Bozeman Science, um, Paul Anderson's website, and then his wonderful uh, uh, screencast on how to make screencasts. Peggy's also sharing some great resources for read aloud from Kate Messner. Uh, we'll include a link to those as well. Eric, your response. This is kind of weird to have three of us here, so we're just you know, <laughs> pass, passing the mic. <laughs> your thoughts? Um, yeah, um, there's so much stuff flowing through my head right now. Um, 
we were talking about um, doing videos and stuff, one of the things I was going to put on the Geek of the Week uh, that I haven't put on there yet, um, some of you may be familiar with uh, Kelly Gallagher. He's written quite a few books on um, writing in the classroom and reading in the classroom. He and Penny Kittle started a uh, daily YouTube chat between the two of them. Um, and um, each day for about a half an hour, they talk about um, reading and writing, but they also kind of externalize what they're experiencing as teachers um, and kind of what, what's happening in their life uh, with all this stuff. And so I'll, I'll put that in the show notes, but I've listened to that almost every day. I think they're on like day seven or something like that. But um, for me, that's been a really good way to just kind of listen to other educators talk about what they're experiencing. He's, they both talk a lot about journaling, what, which I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing a journal um, each day just to kind of keep track of like what's happening news-wise, but also like, hey, what movie did we watch tonight? Did we take a, the dog for a walk? Um, what was I, I talked to yesterday about what it was like to go to the grocery store for the first time in two weeks. Um, I went and got some groceries from my parents and stuff. So just kind of keeping track of that stuff. So um, I'll put the link in there, but it's a really good pedagogy video, but also just a, a humanistic video of two super smart people talking about um, how they're experiencing this as educators. I'll try to put a link in, but our uh, eighth grade uh, history teacher, Kevin Hermanson, had commented the other day that our metro library system in Oklahoma City is looking for young people uh, and others who are going to journal about this time of history. Right. Because and, and we have three, you know, history and social studies loving educators in the in the uh, the call or the, the conference tonight. Uh, we are in the midst of history. Uh, we haven't had a pandemic this significant since 1918 with the Spanish flu. And they are uh, wanting you know, permission to be able to document and then archive the journal writings. And so I've actually thought our, da our daughter journaled for like three hours the other night, you know, sitting on a, on a chair in the front of our, our house. And I was thinking, you know, very cool for her. And then also, I don't know. That's we don't necessarily this this gets into like how technology can go to that transformative level, right? We're thinking about you know distance learning, online learning, and regular classroom learning. A lot of times we're thinking about a very exchange oriented, you know, Paulo Freire would talk about a banking model where we make deposits and we take withdrawals and yada yada yada. But like making a contribution to the history of your community because you're journaling about your experiences and what you're seeing and observing. And then that becomes part of the documentary record of this era of life that we're living through. That's pretty cool. And that would be a type of activity, you know, regardless of technology that we could invite students, you know, into. All right, Dr. Neifer, another uh, article or a link that we want to chat about. We've got, we're about two thirds of the way through the show. Sure. Let me, um, well, a couple of kind of broader, um, maybe not necessarily uh, pandemic-related ones. Um, I have been keeping an eye on – I Wes knows this from, from past episodes. Uh, I've been flirting with getting back into the Apple ecosystem. I don't really want to because I've been supremely happy in Google World. But I know it's that stupid world. And, and in fact, I uh, – as I've been sitting at home the last couple of weeks and I am, I am pretty wired up health wise. I've got a blood sugar sensor that talks to an effect right now because I don't have to be in public. Um, 
I am wearing double watches right now because there's no shame in that. I guess I am publicly announcing this right now, but, uh, you know, I have multiple sensors on and I haven't, I have not, uh, uh, been made of too much fun of yet of, of wearing the double watches during conference calls. But, uh, there is a couple of products that were released last week by Apple that I think honestly are, uh, additional temptations to me. And the reason why I mentioned this is because we mentioned in the past that the MacBook Air, which was eliminated for a little while, it looked like the MacBook Air was going to go away in favor of the MacBook, which I don't think they're even selling that anymore, right? Like the little mini MacBook. And then the MacBook Pro, which uh, a fine piece of hardware, but but has a a pretty high uh, cost of entry to it. Um, the $1,000, and I, and I noticed this morning that they're already on discount, likely because I think sales have been decreasing dramatically due to the, the, the public health situation. But, uh, there's a new MacBook Air, which is way faster and a lot better specs for less money than it was just a year ago. Um, and that's the 13 inch MacBook Air, which looks like it's a very nice piece of hardware. And also there's a new iPad Pro that comes with a a really nice keyboard that has a trackpad on. We mentioned the trackpad piece of this last week uh, in anticipation of its release. But um, if you are into portable stuff in, in the Apple ecosystem, I think Apple's really starting to, uh, I think, gain some ground again in this notion of having entry-level stuff available. I And actually, I, I have this question uh, I know Wes, you you've used the desktop version of the Safari browser because I I don't have a recent iPad, so I I don't uh, I don't have access to that. But I'm starting to get tempted again by the notion that I could stick a let's say the the 11 inch iPad Pro in my day bag and be able to be productive enough on it to do a lot of the work I'd have to do that right now I use a tiny Chromebook for. So it's really interesting what's happening in in the world of Apple. And it feels like they're starting to get a little of their mojo back and they're kind of redefining these areas for that. So I just thought I'd throw that out there for discussion. And I know uh, you're both Apple guys, I believe. So uh, if there are, you know, any pieces of this that you want to have any thoughts on. Eric, what is your uh, platform situation right now, both at home and school? All right, so my phone is a Pixel. Um, I'm a Google guy. I've never had an Apple phone. Um, so I know Wes always has this debate. In, I thought we had pulled Wes to the dark side for a little bit on the yeah. Android. Yeah, I did. Nine months. Phone. Nine months. Yeah. Um, and then he went back. Uh, went back. But um, so our our district has um, iPads up until um, f- through fifth grade, and then currently we have Chromebooks for. Um, uh, six and I'm sorry, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth and seventh have Chromebooks, and then from eighth grade on they had MacBooks. Um, but they had the 11 inch MacBooks, and so our district just announced about um, a month ago that um, high schoolers, so nine through 12, are going to have the 13 inch MacBooks, um, and then our middle levels all going to have. Okay, so um, I think we're iPads. Going. Hi, I'm Penny so, Kittle. Hi, everybody. I'm. Sorry, sorry. About that. Yeah, sorry about was that. Was that me? Oh. No, nope, that was me. That was Wes. Oh, sorry. Um, so we're all get, we're going to be iPads at the middle level next year, and each kid will get a um, case that has a keyboard with it, and then I think they're going to go with the Logitech pencil. Um, I do a lot of photography work, and I just recently bought my own um, nine-inch iPad, but just the entry-level iPad uh, with an Apple pencil, so that I can do some editing and stuff. So. So it'll be interesting. I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's pluses and minuses to it. Um, 
I really liked the kids having the 11-inch Mac. Um, I think that it'll be a change for some people um, with the iPad. Um, so we'll see what happens. We were supposed to get them like next month or whatever. So um, while you were talking about that, I kept thinking in my head here. I'm wondering how that will affect our ability to purchase them and get all the stuff we need. And you know, obviously we're going to do a bunch. We were going to do a bunch of training, kind of springish and stuff. So. Um, all these things start popping up that I hadn't thought of. And when you're not in school for the last three months, suddenly you start wondering, well, how's that going to happen? Or how are we going to get that in? So, Absolutely. Well, and I'm wondering if later this year uh, that some of the conversation we're, we're going to have to talk about is how this broader global event is, is impacting supply chains for districts that have, you know, efficient replacement policies and they're on an every four year, five year, three year, seven year schedule. I know that, um, and, and I, I've been looking for this link for an hour because I, I want to talk about this a little bit that the kind of go home movement in corporate America meant that a lot of IT folks had to very quickly roll out a wide variety of devices for home workers that may or may not have, have worked at home before and they didn't want to have them lug home a desktop. And it was getting to a point that the because of the impact of supply chain and the sudden massive need that there are IT guys going to Costco to buy consumer level HPs, Dells, uh, Acers um, and throwing corporate windows on there and trying to get them rolled out as fast as possible. Um, but it created, you know, a, a, a situation, right? Because they weren't able to you know, quickly buy a you know large number of, of laptops to go home. So yeah, that's an interesting question. And um, as soon as as this becomes less of an immediate uh, uh, crisis, I imagine a lot of IT folks are going to have to start coming to some realities of their purchasing schedule. Back to what, we, what I thought we were had earlier, and I think I, I probably, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I am building and continue to build this uh, instructional support website for our teachers in terms of simplicity and thinking about, you know, getting yourself out there. Uh, I've been a fan of talking about, you know, quick edit video. Now it's the no edit video, right? I mean, using QuickTime Player, for instance, on your, um, your, your Mac, you know, just using your smartphone, um, you can get an $8 adapter that'll put your phone on a tripod if you want, but you know, those check-ins and all of that kind of stuff is, is really important. So it's going to be interesting supply chain wise, what happens with tech companies. I mean, the global economy is basically crashing, I think. I mean, Amazon is going to be doing well. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, is a, is involved with, with, uh, all the delivery, there's about 350 trucks, I think, that deliver in our greater Oklahoma City metro. They're hiring like 100,000 more folks right now on Amazon. They're putting two new warehouses in Oklahoma City. Uh, in fact, our daughter, who's been doing aftercare at our school, I was like, do they have to be 21 to work there? I mean, you know, there's going to be jobs. There's going to be money. But what is this going to mean for the supply chain? Uh, a friend had just shared, I guess, that Foxconn, which produces the majority of Apple or maybe all of Apple's iPhones, you know, has been ramping up again in China. But it's going to be really interesting to follow the tech news. And also for schools, like we're talking about Oklahoma public schools, you know, we're going to need devices. We're, I mean, who are, who's going to produce those? You know, what factories are going to be making them? Are we going to be able to get them in mass and, uh, the, the whole supply chain, I, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I think that we are going to be facing in the next week to two weeks um, a pretty big wave of sickness that's going to be impacting hospitals and impacting communities. The ways that we've heard COVID-19, you know, is latent or whatever the right word is for uh, seven to 14 days. 
And so we're going to be writing this out. But this, as I've, as, as I've heard, you know, many people talk about, this is a marathon and not a sprint. And so I think we need to be drawing up not only these short-term plans about, you know, from a family standpoint, personally, how are we going to ride out the next few weeks, but long-term for our organizations and our institutions and our states, how are we going to meet this challenge when we don't know how long this is going to go on? Um, fortunately, there are a lot of good, I, I would say, you know, good Chromebooks out there in terms of functional and, uh, and, and durable and, you know, maybe it's not going to last 10 years like you might get at, literally out of a out of a MacBook Pro anyway. But the supply chain stuff is is pretty Im- interesting how that's all going to impact stuff. So I'm kind of a like a hobbyist photographer. And I know even back in like the early part of February, there were some supply issues with some Canon stuff that Canon's producing. And Canon just came out with a, a brand new high end camera and it. It uses a an S, uh, uses a card that's unique to that camera, and they were having problems even creating card readers for it because the factory that was producing them shut down very early in the in the process here. So um, just with something like that, where all that stuff's produced in Japan, and um, they shut down a lot of those factories back in February, and so some of that stuff is just not being produced right now. So. And then on top of all the economic stuff, like do those factories start up again? Do they not? I mean, there's going to be a lot of questions. We can shut the global economy down apparently, you know, pretty quickly. But, you know, getting it fired up again um, is going to is going to be a challenge. Here's an article to toss you guys' way. And I don't know if I agree with this, but this was Gizmodo on March 23rd. Unplug your smart speakers while you're working from home. Uh, I've got my one of my uh Google Home Minis right here. Uh, I moved it from the bathroom and I love it. It has responded a couple times unexpectedly when I've been in a video conference. I mean, the gist of this is Google's listening. You're having confidential conversations. You're uploading it all to the cloud. You know, shut it down. Do, do you guys think that everyone should shut off their smart speakers? Go ahead, Eric. Um, well, the people that use the smart speak, we have, uh, I think, three Google minis and we had an Alexa. I don't know if the Alexa is still plugged in anymore, but I mean, the girls listen to music on it all the time. My wife listens to podcasts all the time. My wife uses it for a timer all the time. Hey, Google set a timer for 15 minutes or whatever. Um, so I would probably have a hard time getting the three ladies in my life to stop using Google home. Um, Cause I don't think that they're concerned about it, but I mean, that's, that's a good point. I don't, I have one on my desk down here. Um, I have it hidden in an old 1940s radio, so it looks like it's a, a radio. Um, and I'll, I'll have it play, you know, Frank Sinatra or whatever when I'm working. But I I probably won't unplug it. I guess I'm not that concerned at this point about it. Jason? Um, I won't have one at the office for that reason. And I don't I, – I have mine on mute in, in my uh, – in, this is my kind of evolving home office at home um, – because when I'm working uh, on student stuff at home, just because the number of times that Alexa's picked up, uh, and I think we had this article a couple of years ago, like the example of someone accidentally dialed someone else, um, and like it, it sent off a private conversation between a couple because of of, of the the connection piece. Um, that I, I I don't know about turning them off, but I do have it on mute 
um, when um, I am working on student stuff at home. And part of it's because I spend a lot of my day talking on the phone about private student data. And I think there's still not quite enough protections for rogue listening. I'm not as worried about the always on listening component of that because I do think it's it's to listen for a catchphrase as opposed to listening to everything that you do. But uh, there have been enough accidental releases of stuff in the last couple of years that I would say that that's actually pretty solid advice. Um, the other piece, too, is that I still think intelligent personal assistance, which was the topic of my dissertation, there's so much work that's yet, yet to be done there that um, it, it's it's a handy thing. I wish it were more than handy. I wish it was actually a very powerful platform. So I don't think you're missing out on much from an information standpoint if it goes away. Um, but uh, that's my opinion there. Here's an article related to our COVID crisis, but ties into security. Um, this one is from Ars Technica today. New attack on home routers sends users to spoofed sites that push malware. And so attempting to look like an informational site about COVID-19, these websites are, yes, hitting D-Link and Linksys routers. So if you're still sporting one of those routers, uh, you may want to think about upgrading. I'm actually going to mention something about that in the Geek of the Week. Um, Security is a big issue. Uh, we haven't yet really, you know, talked to our teachers. I don't think about that and our, and our parents as well, but lots more people online, lots of people just probably with more time on their hands. You know, things could happen, either just people joking and thinking they're going to play a trick on somebody or, you know, out and out malicious stuff. And, of course, we've had prior to COVID and, and coronavirus, the, the level of hostility of the computing environment is super high. So on that note, I'll mention that on the Geek Week, too. I'm doing a little webinar tomorrow night about that, talking about protecting your family and yourself. And so um, one other article I'll mention that's related to this. This is from a, a it's actually just a blog uh, that this fellow writes, and I found it this week when I was looking for some resources for our teachers. Um, he wrote an article uh, in Chrome Story on March 16th called How to Use the Chrome Password Manager. So I will pass this question to you, and I'll do you first, Eric. How are you doing on auditing and inventorying all of your online passwords, identifying the ones that are duplicate, and getting them updated if they're either repeated or not secure? Have you Have you been working on that, or where are you with that? So I listen to you guys a lot, and um, I know that you'll probably chastise me for not doing a lot of um, two-step authentication stuff. Um, no judgment I, here. We're not going to yeah, judge people. Yeah. Um, I do use a couple of variety of things mentally to create passwords that are not, you know, one, two, three, four, five. I mean, my passwords are themselves secure, um, but... Um, I probably could do a better job of varying those. Um, I do not use a service um, that typically like Keychain or anything. Well, like a, like a like a password manager or something. Yeah, the stuff. I mean, th we do have Keychain on our district laptop, so I mean, I guess I use that. But um, yeah, I mean, m we've had discussions where my wife's like, "Hey, you need to like have some kind of record of this stuff because if you know, you get hit by a bus, by a bus, so, yeah. you know." How can I do anything on any of your accounts to just even let people know what's going on? So, so right. I I probably need to update and probably should spend a little bit of time during this uh, period to to do that. Right. Now that I've Jason, opened myself up to everybody, that's okay. Yeah, obviously we're <laughs> going to directly be 
be spearfished just because of the edtech situation room. Fortunately, there's, you know, 10, 10 people total listening to us. Actually, I don't know. My daughter asked me tonight. She's like, how many people really listen? I was like, well, you know, months ago we were getting like 500 downloads, but podcasts are kind of like that. You know, you can, I don't know. We're, we're a small and intimate community of mutually supporting educators. I don't like, know how many like people It's like the listen. old days when we were all on the main page of the education um, iTunes page, Wes, when we, Yeah, you know, that's right. I mean, I think all of us were on the main page at one point in like 2006 or whatever, right? So. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was back in back in the day. Back in the day. Well, we're we're nearing the top of the hour. Jason, you want to hit any other articles before Geeks of the Week? Um, I couldn't find an ar- the, the article to say this, although it's been everywhere, and I'm not sure why I could. But for the the Chrome OS faithful, uh, they are going to skip version 82 and go direct to version 83 because of staffing issues at at Mother Google. So um, I there's been a lot of solidifying of new features in Chrome OS, and in fact, I I, I feel like I can finally say after a year of saying this that. The virtual desktops are finally very, very, very solid in, in Chrome OS, and especially if you're running a not low-end Chromebook. It's it's pretty great, but they're starting to work on new features. I, right around this time, they would release uh, version 82 uh, to the public channel, but it's going to be – they're just skipped 83. It's probably going to be four or five more weeks. And I mentioned this in the past, but – uh, if you are working on your laptop more um, or you're working on a computer more than you're used to, especially if you're a, a classroom teacher um, and you're used to not being behind a laptop most of the time, this is a great time to develop new workflows. Um, or the one that I've been doing is um, I, I've been I, – well, I have my ridiculous uh, mechanical keyboard that I utilize at home, but um, I have uh, taught myself four or five new keyboard shortcuts in Chrome OS um, in part because uh, my – my good Chrome OS mouse is locked away at my office at the University of Montana, which I am not going to go back to for a while. So I had to learn some new keyboard strokes. Um, and, uh, you know, it's you should, you know, if we have to be home and on the computer all the time, we might as well learn something new. Learning new keyboard shortcuts, part of the highlights of the COVID-19 quarantine at home. You heard it here, folks. All right. Well, I think it's time for Geeks of the Week. So why don't we let our, our guest Eric go and uh, we'll uh, wrap up the show. All right. So since everybody has a lot of time at home, um, about a year ago, I signed up for Masterclass. I kept getting ads about the uh, Chris Hadfield one. And I finally said, I got I just want to check it out. So um, I bought an all access pass so I could access any of the classes. And I've actually been... Um, thinking about um, talking to you about it, Wes, because there are the Chris Hadfield one on space is probably one of the best learning experiences that I've ever had. Um, there's, there's like, I don't remember 20 different lessons. Um, he talks about what it's like to be an astronaut on the actual day of the launch. I mean, every he talks about the science part. He talks about, it's amazing. Um, it's about $15 a month or you pay, I think it's maybe 180 a year for all for everything, but like I've I've watched the one um, that uh, Steve Martin did on comedy. Not that I'm a funnier person, but it, I just thought it was super interesting. Um, I've watched some cooking ones. There's ones on uh, smoking and barbecue um, that I think that you would like. My daughter's done some stuff with uh, Misty Copeland, the the ballet dancer. My daughter's listened to um, an entire course from Neil Gaiman, the author. Um, and my wife's done some, I mean, it's, they're amazing. Now, like I said, you have to pay for it. It's not just like going to a YouTube 
um, free type of thing, but like the production quality is really good. And, um, I bugged them literally for like, I think once a month for like the last seven months about getting a Roku, a Roku, uh, channel. And, um, I'm on the beta test, I guess. Like last week I got an email saying, Hey, we selected you to test it out. So I've been watching it on my TV. Um, and it's amazing. So if anybody has some time on their hands, try it for a month or whatever, but, um, there's some really, really good quality on there. Dr. Neifer. Sorry, I was just getting distracted by the list of classes over at Masterclass. I have two I want to share. First, I released a blog post today on the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance website about ways state virtual schools have been providing resources, both planning resources and in some cases, uh, curriculum objects, parts of full classes. And I just thought I'd share it. I did spend uh, quite a bit of time on it the last week and kind of gives a sense of uh, state virtual schools, which is what my school is. Uh, we're a, a statewide public virtual uh, um, uh, option for students through their local public school. Uh, that It's a decent blog post and kind of goes through resources. And then second thing that I've, I've seen a couple of references to, and I mentioned Cloud Ready probably a dozen times since we started the podcast, but Cloud Ready is the uh, kind of roll your own Chromebook solution. You can take an, an, an old PC or Mac laptop or desktop and run cloud ready and turn it into pretty darn close to a Chromebook. It, it lacks a couple of features, but the reason why I mention it's because I know that a couple of tech directors that have had to quickly send home, um, uh, Machines have put cloud ready on instead because it's easier to manage. It's easier for students to use. It's less likely to get uh, messed up uh, than a Windows install might be, especially if you want it to be instantly usable. But also, if you're at home right now and you've got uh, extra people in your house that are stuck there doing all their stuff virtually, you don't have a lab enough laptops, you may have an old laptop sitting around. Don't do this on something that you need every day, like prefer an older one here. Chances are uh, it could make a real difference, but there's a free home version, and I absolutely love it. In fact, I'm on a, a cloud-ready device right now, a desktop machine that I've installed this on, and it's pretty awesome. So cloud-ready by Neverwhere. Awesome. And uh, I've got three quick ones. I am continuing to write some blog posts related to the COVID-19 situation. I'm using the hashtag COVID19EDU on uh, Twitter and then also on my blog. And so uh, if you search my blog, which I'll put the link in the show notes, uh, you'll pull those four up. Uh, on March 2nd, I did a post on a video tutorial, Virtual Office Hours with Google Hangouts Meet, which... Coincidentally, all of our teachers are now having to do. Um, March 8th, the coronavirus pandemic and media literacy. Uh, March 16th, three ways to become a more connected educator during the COVID-19 crisis. And then last night, I wrote tips and strategies for remote learning. I had a chance to share a virtual keynote for our faculty over GoToMeeting on Monday. We kind of had a K-12 online style situation where we had a keynote and then we had some, you know, independent learning on your own and then come together in some uh, breakout rooms. And so, Peggy, our time together was, uh, you know, use, utilizing those lessons learned. Um, I want to do a shout out to Google Nest Wi-Fi. Uh, thankfully, a lot because of Jason, I upgraded our Wi-Fi at home to what was at the time called Google Wi-Fi. Now it's called Google Nest Wi-Fi. Don't be confused. We're not paying Google for our Internet service. We get that from Cox Communications or Cox, Oklahoma here. But the Wi-Fi, it is incredibly better. And in just the first day here of virtual learning, we had our orientation day today, uh, multiple faculty with issues, not being able to upload, difficulty with latency, with the video conference chats, not 
working the way they should. And, and they're like, man, I'm in one case, I'm paying, you know, for a hundred megs down. Why am I doing this? Well, when you're on Wi-Fi and you're on a crummy, you know, Wi-Fi access point, you're not getting your full speed. So we're, we're trying to help with them maybe wiring in directly. But if you have the means and we're going to be doing this for a while, it's really a good idea to upgrade your Wi-Fi at home. So Google Nest Wi-Fi, fantastic. And then the last one, um, I went ahead and decided to, to start doing, cause you know, I'm not doing enough online, uh, Thursday night, uh, webcast series. And so last week I did the first one on family oral history projects, cause what a great time it might be to do some family oral history when we're sequestered together. You can even interview, you know, relatives over the internet with different kinds of tools. Um, but tomorrow night I'll be doing another one. These are recorded. <clears throat> you can access all of them on the website, designcreateshare.com that I spun up. I've had that domain here for about a year, a couple of years. And uh, tomorrow night is about protecting yourself and your family online. So with that, let's share where people can connect with us and we'll wrap up the show. Dr. Langhorst, when you're not here pontificating from Liberty over the airwaves of the EdTech Situation Room, where online can people connect with you? Uh, probably best way is on Twitter at E. Langhorst. Um, I haven't been blogging uh, lately, so I'd say probably Twitter is the best place. All right. And you, Dr. Neifer? I am a tech savvy teacher on Twitter, and I blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog.ncc.org. And you, Dr. Fryer? I am W. Fryer on the Twitters, and my blog is speedofcreativity.org. Want to take us out? And this thing here isn't Twitter. It isn't blogs. It is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We are here every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time. I know sometime in the middle of the night in Europe. Uh, you can come to us live. We uh, uh, broadcast over Facebook and YouTube each week via our great StreamYard uh, streaming tool. But if you can't listen to us live, you can always download this podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. Or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, check out both show notes and download teeny tiny audio copies of the podcast. We thank you for joining us at the EdTech Situation. We hope to see you next time. Until then, stay safe, stay savvy. Good night. Good night, everybody.